Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Hello again, listeners. Welcome to another Daily Canon Weekly Podcast. It's a sort of after-the-season-has-ended weekly podcast, which sometimes can lead to us having not very much to talk about. However, that's not the case here, because we've got lots to talk about. Because obviously there's the whole season that went before. Uh, much as though painful some of that might be to talk about, there's also things that have happened in the week since we won the FA Cup, so that's also worth talking about. And also some things that appear to be very much on the horizon. So helping me to look at all that, talk through it, and probably come up with more intelligent things to offer than I have, is Anita Sambol, as usual, all the way from Croatia. How are are you Anita? Hello, hello, Matthew. Really hot here in Croatia, but I hear it's hot in the UK as well. Yeah, what kind of temperature have you got there? I think it's thirty-one degrees. Oh, I think we're beating you. Yeah. I think I think I think bizarrely we're hotter than you at the moment, <laughs> which doesn't happen too often. <laughs> but there we are. Have you been out and about, or have you been taking refuge indoors? We have been visiting uh, my fiance's parents. <laughs> And now staying inside for the rest of the day. Yes, only about a month to go, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Uh, a month to go till till, till the new season and till the, our wedding. So it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're guaranteed to have one one side of things going well, even if the other lets you down. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't. I just hope that Premier League keeps to their what they said that the season starts on the 12th of September so they don't put a, a, a match on 11th which is Friday which wouldn't be so surprising but I really hope they will <laughs> well they also hope that the first match of the season isn't Arsenal against Manchester United <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean just thinking about the season that's been I mean obviously both realistically and metaphorically, it seems like a very long time ago that this season started with all the uh, post-summer transfer business excitement, you know, after we were told we should be excited. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think most of us reasonably were, despite some doubts about things here and there. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't want to go into too much detail, but yeah, um, <laughs> I suppose. Stay above this season. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and can you compare to how you're feeling at the start of the season to how it's ended? Not the, not the reality of what's happened, but just the feeling. <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, the season started with, with Unai Emery in charge, which seems so, so, so long ago. Mm. After that, uh, the defeat that we had in the Europa League final with. Another season of Europa League, another season of hoping to get something from, from the Premier League top four. And then not a really good start. <laughs> I mean, we had some wins, right? It was Liverpool who beat us first. Yeah, yeah. The first, um, we had a couple of, couple of wins at the start of the season and then went to Anfield. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there, there was some excitement, excitement that happens pretty much every every single season you know, no matter what happens uh, in in may end of end of may in the season before then during summer you get hyped up thinking oh we might do something this season this is our season something will change <laughs> something will do better it can be worse than last season that's yeah, i mean especially last five or six seasons in a row mm, mm, and mm. then slowly <laughs> it dies down by by christmas it usually was, you know, by February or March even, and now it's 
by Christmas, it was like, oh, please, can this season be over <laughs> already? <laughs> yes. Thankfully, then we had the fun, uh, air quotes, <laughs> period, <laughs> with the sacking and Freddy and everything that happened afterwards into the much better second half of the season, but much weirder than anything we had before. Yeah, I mean, you think I think you picked up on something there because there was a there was already by sort of November the feeling of like oh god can it just end and 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 actually uh, our endurance was rewarded in the end dis- <laughs> dis- despite something you wouldn't really have predicted at that point in time. Um, I mean, I firstly, you know, again, we're not going to interrogate in any great detail. Hey, we've got the old podcast and whatever, but. Uh, just touching back on the, the the final days of or the final matches of Unai Emery, um, you, you know, do, with more time having passed, do you have a more of a sense in your own mind about what went wrong? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, keep the list re- relatively short. <laughs> <laughs> I think that key problem with uh, Emery was, as many have already said it was the communication. I think that he perhaps had some okay, good ideas and had perhaps had some plans that obviously convinced our board and those in charge that, yes, he might be a good choice for for the club and had some ideas for for using these players and signing new players and everything. But it's just, from all that, that I remember from his especially in the first half of this season, was that it just didn't look good. The players didn't look like, like they knew what was supposed to be done, what they should play on the pitch. There was no... It just it didn't look like they were playing as a team that has a plan, clear plan going forward. Mm. And, mm. It just didn't look like it, it worked together. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Communication, I mean, obviously... The public-facing communication was key as well because, you know, if if the manager or coach can tell us what's going on, then at least we can feel somehow invested in it. But when we can see something going wrong and we can't even work out from what the coach is saying what should be happening, then it, it's much harder to kind of stay supportive of that. Um, but also I think... You know, a bit, a bit like what, what may become the conversation going forward about Lucas Torreira, I, I fear that some people just don't quite fit in certain situations, no, no matter what, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, Emery took a lot of stick in at PSG, but his time at Sevilla proves that he's competent, you know, uh, and certainly the work ethic was never in question. Um, but it seemed to me that he didn't quite get his head round, like, the Premier League, mm-hmm. in that, if you think about it, in the Europa League, until we t- played a Premier League team, we, we found the Europa League fairly easy under Unai Emery, even against some very good opposition. Um, but when but when we suddenly played up against Chelsea in the final, and suddenly when the, the Premier League season got to be the real grind at the end, it started falling apart, and he didn't seem to know how to judge, you know, what selections to play, what formations to play. You know, when 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 the intensity of the football caught up on the team, he seemed to be at a bit of a loss. I mean, you look at this season. You know, when the plan didn't work, he's it, 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 as you say, it didn't look like the team knew what they were trying to do because I think he was 
aware that something needed to change, but what he was trying to do didn't work. And when you're in that situation, it can be very, very difficult to work out the correct way to adjust. And of course, he didn't have that knowledge of English football to fall back on, and he didn't have that sort of level of communication and and also just personality, you know. Yeah. He, he always came across as like a decent, hard-working guy who was well-intentioned, but not not someone you follow, you know, not a, not an inspirational figure. Um, so then obviously things unraveled further <laughs> and it got to the, and we had that terrible, terrible one run where we barely could barely get a, a win for a couple of months, didn't we? Yes. Yes. Um, and um, was Chaka incident then as well. Exactly. Um, now I think we, we probably, I don't know if you'd agree, but I, I guess we, like everyone else thought that that was him done. In the club. <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't that convinced because I, I, I am a big Chaka fan, and I was just always thought that there is a, definitely a place for him in this in this team because he means so much for the team, for he for team his teammates, the players. Even though lots of fans didn't really appreciate him and like him, but he was really really important and I just couldn't see him being banished out of the team for, for a longer time because he just seems kind of irreplaceable, irreplaceable at the moment for me I, my, 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 that oh, sorry. Also, sorry but not that fans also came, came around by the end of this season thanks to his effort as well yeah uh, and also down to the fact I mean part of the reason why I feared so much of Granite Xhaka at the time was not just about what happened because obviously that's always something that takes time to repair and not all people can repair that um, but also the fact that well it's essentially the way that Emery had the team set up for, for the you know the first few months of this season the, the midfield was always a like a shuttle run race it was like you know, everyone was just, there was no structure. So there was, you know, he was being asked to cover a lot of ground, which we all know through no fault of his own. That's just something he can't do. He hasn't got the, yeah. the physiology to do that. <laughs> and um, I, I just thought with Emery in charge, I, he was just getting hung out to dry the whole time. And I couldn't see a way in which he could work in that team. And of course, yeah. it, once Emery got sacked, then you're like, okay, well, what's coming next? Because we know that what hap was happening didn't work. That was clear for everyone to see um, by the end. So, yeah, obviously then we had... There was a point sort of where he was dead man walking, wasn't there? For <laughs> yeah, when we were just, you know, waiting. Maybe this week it will happen. Maybe after this match, after this match. I mean, do, do you remember when you... Not necessarily when you felt he should go, but when you first realised that he was going to go and it was just a case of when the board made the decision. Well, at the moment, I really can't remember when was that because I was feeling like he should definitely go like somewhere in mid-September or early October, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can't remember the you know, exact moment when I knew it will definitely happen, but... I was really happy <laughs> when it happened. I mean, for me, I think I think the moment where you... Because oh, I think as fans, we'd kind of made up our mind. But I yeah. think the moment you knew where there was no way to turn... Or I knew when there was no way to turn it round at all, was that 
was it Southampton at home? Was it Southampton mm-hmm. when Lacazette got the the very late equaliser? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember if it was Southampton. It's a home game. I think it was Southampton. Lacazette got the equaliser in like the ninetieth minute or eighty ninth minute or something or ninety first minute. And do you remember that reaction when he got the equaliser and he didn't really celebrate and the ground was just like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh my god, this means that he gets to stay for another week or something. And at, <laughs> and at that moment, I knew that unless unless he suddenly went on an amazing result of results out of nowhere and won like the next ten games in a row, that he was dead. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, he didn't last much long after that. He was it was the, the Europa League defeat that saw the end of him. But uh, yeah, that that was what possibly possibly the most surreal moment. I've had just watching an Arsenal game, you know, seeing a, a, a you know a late equalising goal. Yeah, yeah, you would think the stadium would erupt, the players would be happy, but it was just like. Oh. Because I think it was also that that moment showed it didn't it not just showed the world that the fans had had lost all faith, but it also showed that the players weren't really invested in the same, you know. Yeah, the they didn't way. believe in him. They didn't play for him. They didn't know what what's gonna happen and i think that they they also partly waited for for him to be gone as well yeah yeah um and then obviously we had uh freddie parachuted in out of the blue well i mean we all hoped and wished that he will do good and uh, do something you know instant uh, instantly better team but it's it's an ungrateful position for it was ungrateful position for him especially for his first uh, first team uh, appointment and everything but I mean it was a clear that he was a temporary solution from the start at least to me yeah yeah I mean he made that clear the club pretty much made that clear so no one was in any doubt and and to be fair he'd you know most people when they step up and you think they've got a chance of getting a job they either make a pitch for the job or they've expressed the desire to be the head coach previously. Yeah. Whereas Freddie has, you know, he sort of alluded to the fact that long term, that's what he'd like to do one day. But he, mm-hmm. it was never presented as being an imminent desire. And when he was given the role, you know, no one was under any illusions at all that it was temporary. And I mean, it, it sort of created a brief feel good, but didn't really change anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's pop. You know, I, Go ahead. I just want to say that I really like that about Freddie, because uh, when you see, uh, for, for example, Thierry Henry, hmm. who just started being uh, got his coaching badges and everything, and just wanted to, was uh, really angry because Arsenal didn't offer him a position or something like that. I wanted to. I just had a feeling that he wanted to start right away from from the big big games and. Uh, get a big team or something. Well, I, I really like Freddie is uh, aware that he definitely needs some more, a lot more experience to be a first first team coach somewhere else. I think it's also a character thing as well in that, um, you know, personality more than character. Yeah. In that, you know, whenever you see Freddie interviewed, he, he comes across as very composed, but, you know, quite quiet, quite thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, you, you can see why, as a, as a person that's nurturing younger players coming into the first team, you can see why he's great at that, because he's a, he's a, you know he's a, he's a a sort of warm, soft presence, and I don't mean soft in a perjurative terms, but just like a, you know someone that you feel you could talk to. <laughs> um, but 
you know, I think in order to be the head coach of a big team, you need to have that other side as well. And I think yes. Freddie may well have that, but we haven't seen any evidence of it. Um, whereas, you know, in a way, Thierry's might be more suited to being a head coach at this point because he has that arrogance <laughs> and, and always has done. You know, that's always been part of his character. And you, and it's uh, and with that comes the belief. Um, but obviously there, there are other things going on as well. Um, so when it first... So it was first rumoured that Arteta was going to take over, you know, before mm-hmm. it happened. How did you feel about that? I, I, I liked it. I mean, when Avangera was going and there was people, you know, camp- campaigning for Mikel Arteta to, <laughs> to take over, to come on, I, was, I wasn't really that into it. I mean, I wouldn't mind it. I wouldn't mind anyone. I gave uh, Emery a chance as well. But yeah, I thought yeah. that was a bit... A bit too unexperienced when it comes to mm-hmm. you know being in charge of the of a football team because obviously he had a lot of practice with Pep Guardiola and was already some kind you know in a co- coaching mind while he was the captain at Arsenal and everything you you can hear players mm. saying that he was leading the team and everything like that so I didn't doubt that part but still you have to have some kind of experience to be in charge of a team it's a really huge huge job for him. But now when when we saw what happened with uh, Emery and how the club was des- in a desperate need of a uh, rebuild, I thought that uh, giving Mikel Arteta a chance was really the uh, best thing that we could have done because because of besides the that I think that he's a good young coach that has been learning from a really one of the best uh, managers out there at the moment. I also like his general character and the values that he has and the fact that he played for, for Arsenal so long and was a captain and he's in, learned from Wenger as well. So those are the parts that I like. And him as a human being seems like a decent guy. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I definitely agree with something you said. Well, I'd agree with all of it, but one of the thing that stands out for me is the, is the fact that by the time he was being linked to the job, you know, when Emery went... The situation was where, well, it you could take a flyer on someone because, like, the team was in such bad shape, the results were so bad, the the mood was so negative that it felt kind of less of a risk. Yeah. Because you know the team, whatever happened, the team has too too many good players to actually be in a relegation battle or something like that. Um, but you knew equally at that point that it would take a miracle to get the team into the top four at that point uh, particularly once some of the other teams started you know once you realise that United were going to buy <laughs> Bruno Fernandes who is like like anyone with eyes could see he was a player that was going to make a big difference to them because he yeah. has the attributes they desperately missed um, so I, for, for me I was kind of like I have no idea how good he'll be the indications we have suggest that he's got something about him um, but you know, now's the time to be taking a punt. And if we're going to take a punt, it might as well be on someone who has a connection to the club already. And then, of course, he gets the job and he we have that that opening interview. <laughs> uh, and I don't know about you, but for me, that was a moment. I was kind of like, OK, I'm sold now. You know, that's <laughs> it. That's it. Like, Mikel Arteta's red and white army. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, I was like, OK, well, that's all the convincing I need. Yeah. I think that the general mood around the club changed as well. Uh, right away, that most of the fans—I mean, from from what I've 
people who I follow on Twitter, I haven't seen anyone complaining that, oh, why did we sign Arteta? Why didn't we go for Mourinho or someone like that? Ooh, I, I've seen some people say that, but they didn't tend to get shouted down quickly. <laughs> I think that most people were aware of what you said, that there would be a miracle needed to change the season up for, for something to happen possibly to get the top four or something like or win the Europa League but and that most fans were just aware that we need a reset and that Nikola Teta is a really good 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 guy to <laughs> to have around for that. And I think that he proved that over 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 this half a season. Yeah and I think that, that opening interview, you know, that first interview when he was appointed the manager was was one of the most impressive I've seen from someone taking a, a new job, you know, he, particularly he, even if you ignore the fact that, you know, he's a guy without any resume behind him. There was no, there was, you know, he didn't, he couldn't lean on past, past achieve, achievements in a way that a lot of other people can. But he just managed to seem to come in and communicate to us and the world that he really understood what the problems were incredibly succinctly and quickly. But, and also just the way he communicated with that, with that degree of conviction and clarity, I immediately thought, well, this guy, this guy has the capacity to teach. Uh, and because he's, he, he's very certain in his own mind and he's very clear. And, you know, I mean, we all loved Arsene Wenger, but he, he didn't give as much away. In interviews, you know, <laughs> Arsene Wenger was all charm and humour, and bring and talking about the other things in the world, and you know, incredibly uh, admirable character for all those reasons. But from a pure, just singular football sense, I thought I just thought Arteta was just like this is a this is a guy who, unless this is all incredibly well rehearsed bullshit, this is a guy who knows how to train players, knows how to teach, and just gets what the issues at the club are, even though he's been away for so long. Um, I mean, not I the, that... It ahead. wasn't a rehearsal, uh, but because of the things players said, what was happening during lockdown and everything, how he was commu communicating with them, calling them and hmm. doing all that, it just seems like he's definitely that kind of person. Well, I think it became clear very quickly within yeah. just a couple of games that that it wasn't, you know, just just yeah, a, a front. Just for the interview. <laughs> yeah, because you could see that, you know, even with all its problems, you could see straight away the team looked like a team again. Yes, that's exactly what changed the most. Um, uh, both in terms of energy and commitment, but also in terms of you're looking at what people are doing on the pitch and you're kind of, okay, well, these people seem to be doing things in relation to what everyone else is doing. And <laughs> it's not rather than people doing things that make sense but all not connected but immediately there was a sort of a greater connection in the team um and as and you know uh, as we as we've all noticed uh, the the atmosphere as you as you mentioned changed so quickly immediately there was a sense of positivity that came from the players and of course as fans although we can put pressure on players whatever, we responded to that very quickly as well yes um so then we get on, we go on a decent run. We have a, you know we have the unlucky loss to Chelsea where we probably should have beaten them and Jorginho should have been sent off and all the rest of it. <laughs> and then we beat Man United, which is a, a great marquee result to get things going. Um, and we have a, a, a good set of results and we're getting some momentum. And then obviously 
everything changes <laughs> for everyone. Mikel Arteta saves the world. <laughs> well, he saves the Premier League. Saves the Premier League. Yeah, um, maybe that's why Anthony Taylor was finally nice to us in the FA Cup final. <laughs> after, after years of treating us like shit. Um, but, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, that was a, 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 just a sort of... It, amongst all the fear and the madness, it was a funny moment of him immediately shooting down the Premier League's attempts to pretend that nothing was going on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was totally the dog in the burning room meme, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> Everything is fine, yeah. Um, and then... The big break, nothing happening. But still, he worked hard with, with the players, as already mentioned, with the meetings and calls and everything. Yeah. Plans. And it was interesting, you know, because obviously he'd only had a relatively short amount of time with those players, you know, two and a yeah. half months. But it was interesting during lockdown how many of them were, you could tell how many of the players were already convinced. Uh, you know, you know. <laughs> Just that, like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they, they, they'd kind of seen enough to know that, okay, this is a guy. And it became clear that David Luiz was a chief cheerleader as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, and you know, it's a bit easier to to accept that he's here for another season, at least. <laughs> indeed, um, but also it's that thing that you know, whatever you think of David Luiz as, a, as as his flaws as a player, and you know, I know that he divides opinion, and he sometimes divides opinion even in us as individuals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, the guy has played for a lot of the best coaches in the world big clubs and has won things so you know he can recognise a duffer or, or not pretty quickly so it, 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 it goes well with, with what Ateta has been I mean what was well you can kind of see and tell that Ateta is doing a mix of uh, young players with uh, those with a lot of experience that from whom mm. the young players can learn from so in that aspect also it's, it's good to have David Lewis around because even though he has his bad days and bad decisions but he's still really a good defender that young players can learn from yeah i mean the fact is is uh, he has his flaws but you know the, the flaws he has are so self-evident you know it, it doesn't take a lot for for someone to to learn to not do those things you know basically his he makes mistakes because he sometimes loses concentration and he's not as quick as he used to be and sometimes struggles with that <laughs> um and those are things which you don't you don't need a genius to explain to you if you're watching and trying to learn um so then we had project restart um which didn't restart very well <laughs> yeah it was like oh. Nothing, nothing changed over these two, two months. <laughs> but I mean, playing against Man City was probably the worst way to start. <laughs> yeah, <Restart>. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was that weird thing, wasn't it? It was that excitement at football being back and then thinking, but we've got the hardest game we could possibly have. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And then we lost two players from injury in the first half and then had a man sent off conceding a penalty. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, we, 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 it was like, it was... That's the closest we can equate to how Chelsea must have felt at the end of the cup final. They're <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, definitely felt like, oh, what else can happen in the, in the next match? <laughs> and, we, and we found out what else could happen in the next match. We're obviously, we had our delightful trip to the South Coast. Yeah. And uh, 
the the injury to Burnt Leno and the uh, falling fallout with Genduzi. <laughs> that was the lowest lowest part of the the restart. Yeah, well, particularly as obviously none of us had seen anything from Emmy Martinez apart from like a few clips on loan at Reading and some League Cup games where he'd been okay. Yeah, you were always hoping. Oh, maybe maybe he's okay. He's good enough to be a. Uh, in the in reserve, you know, waiting on there. Yeah, yeah. If, if someone gets interested, then, then play for like half an hour or so in, in a match to you know, keep the result going. But I think everyone was surprised how good he was. And before they were surprised, everyone was shitting themselves. <laughs> 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 and then, but then obviously that was our lowest point. You know, it was a terrible result. We clearly lost all our momentum. But then Arteta changed things up a bit, and you know, apart from uh, a couple of results that weren't as good as we might have liked, we had we went on a really good run. Yeah. And um, I think obviously playing Sheffield United away without any fans was a big help because <laughs> um, that's something I think would have been a very different game had there been forty thousand Yorkshiremen screaming at the top of their voice. Um, but you know, then you get to the semi-final of the cup. Uh, a nice, easy three, three, three potential opponents, <laughs> and of course we got the toughest of them in the semi-final. Yeah, that one was. I was going into that one. Whatever happens, because they are obviously one of the best teams in the in the in the in the country. So whatever happens, but it's it's a cup competition. It's, it's our cup. Well, exactly. It's 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 the Arsenal Invitational, <laughs> and we were on a high from the Premier League match. Yeah, and and yeah. but but I think it was also you know when we first saw the draw, I think there was that overall sense of dread. But then by the <laughs> by the time we played them, it, there was pressure on it, but it was also no pressure because they were so overwhelming favourites, and you know the season already felt like a bit of a write off. So it, was, it felt like a like a puncher's chance, you know, you just go out there and... Yeah, nothing nothing to lose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously we put in an incredibly impressive performance. Yeah, much better than against Liverpool. Yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, but it also illustrates why Liverpool are, are actually, what well, are league champions, because despite Man City being brilliant, Liverpool, for me, are a team that can hurt you in more different ways. Uh, you know... Um, and Liverpool are better defensively, despite their despite their gifts to us. Um, <laughs> so the league season sort of peters out, uh, and then it, we we lose the chance to qualify for the Europa League for the league. So then it's all on the Chelsea game, and obviously we've talked about that at length. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't get a chance to talk about that at length because it was with Paul last week. So I mean, just just yeah, give your feelings, emotions. Obs observations, anything you want about the Chelsea game, because you haven't had a chance to talk about it in the Cup. I did predict to one win. You did. It's on record. <laughs> we have it on record. It's okay. We know. We gave you credit on last week's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Chelsea. It, I am usually, you know, worried about, about playing against Chelsea because I think that they, over the last few seasons, they are pretty similar to us, but can be... Uh, a bit better than us when it comes into you know direct direct matches direct uh, or no yeah <laughs> yeah so I wasn't it was hard one to to predict to, to think what will happen but again it's it's Emirates FA Cup it's our it's Wenger Invitational as they say 
So I thought that the, the players will definitely be bummed for that one, and it was great to see that they really were because you know coming from behind after you know going what was eight minutes or something when Polish scored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's eight something. I mean, I, I I was a bit worried, but I didn't have doubts doubts that our players will turn it around because they seemed really up for it and really excited to play in the cup final after such a bad season overall. So, I mean, so we end up having the strangest and one of the worst seasons in a generation. Um, but we ended up with a trophy in European football as a result of that trophy. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do it in one word, but how would you sort of at this point sum up like this season for you? <laughs> well, this was obviously the worst season for me as an Arsenal fan since I started supporting Premier League season. I mean, with finishing that, that low, that never happened. Where, I mean, it, it has happened since, what, 95, 94? Yeah, uh, 94, 95, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 only this time we won, won the cup final at the end of the season as opposed to losing in the 93rd and in the 121st minute like last time. <laughs> Yeah, we at least won the, the FA Cup, which many say that it's not a real trophy, but I say this trophy or nothing is uh, much, much better. I think that it, it went a lot to players mm. and for, for the European football next season. Although I already prepared myself myself for no European football next season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would have been tough budget-wise, but I think mm. it, would, it wouldn't be bad for, for the team with the rebuilding progress and everything. But that right now, I think that we can also handle both sides as well. It's, it's always a good thing to be a part of European football. Yeah, financially, reputation-wise, and also we, you know, we've seen how the Europa League can be really useful for us in terms of giving opportunities to younger players. And we've got a lot of younger players in the squad at the moment who aren't quite at that first team level, but they're trying to get to that first team level and you know some of them won't ever do and some of them will but this is a great opportunity for them to keep playing in you know against experienced high level but not elite level opponents uh you know i i think you know people like emil smith rowe will get a lot of time in it you know obviously the inketia will we might even get games for some of the players that started making the match day squads into the season like matt smith or whatever like that uh Matt Smith, which is a great source of amusement for me because basically about 80% of all the Arsenal fans I know are going, who was that blonde geezer was it that was photobombing at the end, you know? <laughs> and I'm going, ah, I can tell you all about him. Uh, but um, More trophies than Harry Kane. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's got more winners' medals than uh, Tottenham Hotspur FC in the last decade. <laughs> yeah. Those are those were really really funny. Even though we again didn't have a Saint Totteringham's day this season, but at least we won the trophy. And those jokes of going around with the, how Arteta was in charge, how long, and already has more trophies than Tottenham in the last decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet Pochettino's not feeling quite so smug now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was that one. Was one tweet going around like Mikel Arteta played for Everton, captained Arsenal, went to City, got his coaching badges, took over Arsenal, and won a trophy before Tottenham did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's also the thing of, um, you know, just realizing that 
we still, even when we're struggling, we still got enough of a big club mentality in certain yeah. situations. Even with the deficiencies of the squad, there's still, you know, there is something about being a historically successful team, particularly in a comp- particular competition, that gives you a sort of, a sort of confidence uh, and a sort of belief that you can, you know, that, that they always say the first one's always the hardest because until you've done it, you don't know you can do it. Whereas, you know, we had three players in that starting eleven who had beaten Chelsea in an FA Cup final three years previously. So that's always going to help. Yeah, and and ultimately it allows us to look forward with a lot more optimism than I think we could have anticipated it at any point really in this season, Uh, you know, apart from the first two games. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't even imagine what was the... What would happen? What would be the mood around the club if we lost that uh, FA Cup final? It would just be all doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah, although I think in a way it wouldn't be as much as you might expect because we'd already had so much doom and gloom already. <laughs> you, you know, we'd already spent some of that angst and feeling. You know, if we'd lost the cup, it would have been obviously very disappointing. It would have been made things financially harder. But we'd already, as you say, mentally prepared ourselves for having a season where we finished out to the European places and didn't win anything. We'd already kind of been through that process earlier in the season, I think. So had done some of our mourning six months ago. I mean, we would survive like we did so many things already. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so that brings us up to where we are now. Um, obviously... There's the other other added hilarity of the fact that we've now given Tottenham Hotspur uh, a couple of weeks earlier to have start their season and some extra games against, I don't know, Albanian farmers or... <laughs> yeah, there was a list in a tweet, a list of possible opponents and it had a translate tweet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of those ones where, you know, it, there was... You'd have to be a real European football export, expert to have heard of more than two or three of those teams... Yeah. Uh, and uh, we don't have to play them, so hooray! <laughs> um, and also, of course, we get more sl- slightly more dosh um, as a result of the cup win. And, and uh, although, having said that, getting into European football means that the players who took a twelve point five percent pay cut are now only taking taking a seven point five percent pay cut. So half the money we get for European football, we have to give back to the players for getting us European football. Well, they deserve. Which is entirely fair. <laughs> it's entirely fair enough. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's something. It's not all going to the transfer budget. Indeed, indeed. Which is why we're hearing lots of rumours about outs as well as ins. Uh, well, that's only logical. I think you have to be realistic. Yeah. Um, I mean, before we get on to any of that, obviously there has been some news in the last week that mm. dropped quite soon after the euphoria of the FA Cup. Yeah, uh, four days of, of joy and then... Oh. Yeah, and then and then it, it wasn't quite the political trick of burying bad news, but it was possibly softening it slightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we are, listeners, of course, talking about the 55 redundancies uh, that the club has announced will be taking place uh, pending a consultation. Uh, yeah, that, that's the part I wasn't sure. I mean, I'm not really familiar with all the terms and everything in, in business and, mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, so what does that mean? That, does it mean that they can still change their minds and not sack anyone? Or? Well, well, I think like like a normal corporate redundancy process, 
to make people redundant as opposed to you know to an, an avoiding a constructive dismissal claim <laughs> which then needs to take you to court essentially you have to prove that their job currently doesn't exist mm-hmm. and and then you get into kind of possibly situations where where it's a reduction of those jobs and some of those people be able to compete to reapply for the reduced number of jobs. That's possibly what the consultation process might lead to, where pe- where there's a, they, there's a discussion that says, actually, we we think we need 55 redundancies uh, or, or that there should be 55 redundancies. Maybe, actually, it should be 45 and, uh, and then some of those people be able to reapply for their jobs. Um, and so the club has to prove that those jobs don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. which is why some of the news reporting of it has been a bit naughty, because of course they've been talking about the redundancies and then putting the scouts in with those redundancies, and of course some of those scouting decisions are entirely separate decisions, partly because a lot of scouts are hired on a consultancy basis or a contractual basis as opposed to being a full-time employee, so they're not so redundancies are relevant. Um, and what's emerged as the week's gone on is there's, there's the redundancies and there's an overhauling of the scouting procedure, which we don't know a great deal about yet, why it's happening, what's planned to replace it. Yeah, but we can speculate. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of speculation. Uh, <laughs> but just going back to the to the redundancies, yeah, you know, obviously it feels like a massive kick in the teeth for us looking at it from a move perspective to those people because the players took a pay, to pay cut to protect jobs uh, the club has obviously just had a you know won a trophy, improved the financial situation. We're in the market to be buying players and renewing contracts, so it's easy for people to say, "Well, you're only going to save two million by laying these people off. Why the why the fuck are you giving someone a signing on fee or giving someone increased wages?" But of course, the football side of the business and the business side of the business will be largely ring fenced from each other. They'll be kept separately, and ultimately, whether we like it or not. It's harsh because a, you know, a billionaire employer could choose if they were directly running the company to keep those players on, to keep those jobs on rather and and pay their wages and just take it as a hit, as has happened for some companies around the world that are experiencing this at the moment. Um, however, there isn't really a direct link to KSC because they essentially outsource decision making except, for, you know, and they have to have very good reasons to disagree with decisions being made in the UK and ultimately a lot of those jobs at the moment don't exist you know yeah, a, a lot match match staff match day staff match day staff corporate staff commercial deal staff you know uh, anything around the match day experience or the marketing or sales of anything unconnected to that yeah and it, it's hard to say when will they be needed again because no one knows when the fans will return to the stadium especially in the full capacity yeah exactly exactly and you know we also have to remember that arsenal as is the case you tend to get with the older generation clubs that have always been successful big clubs have a massive number of staff i mean i think that there was information going around that we have prior to these cuts about 600 employees full-time employees uh, or, or certainly contracted employees whereas Chelsea and Man City are about half that or less than half of that and no one can suggest that as clubs they're not doing well 
Uh, and no one can suggest as clubs that they don't have better financial resources than us as well. Um, whereas the only two teams in Britain who've got more staff numbers are Man United and Liverpool. Mm. Um, so, old school. yeah, old school, exactly. And so there's a question mark is, you know, it's easy to jump to a conclusion about this because it makes us feel something emotional and there's correlations we can draw. But correlation and causation are different things. But also the fact that it depends what happens next. You know, ultimately, are these positions that are going to be redundant and will continue to be redundant because the club changes the way it does things? Is it redundancies for a period of time until things get back to normal? Is it a case of trying to restructure things before get back, things get back to normal so we're more efficient? You know, it's we don't have the information to really make those judgment calls. You know, so all we can really elude from it is it's bad for the people losing their jobs and it's very bad PR. Um, but going back onto the scouting, I mean, what did you want to say about that situation? <laughs> well, I'm really not not too happy about about that one. I mean, obviously we didn't. We used to have a bit a bit more scouting, a bit better scouting in the Wenger years. You know, you every season there was some kind of player from from nowhere jumping in the Arsenal team and doing really really well, which obviously slowed down a bit over the last few seasons. But I just don't like the fact that we are we seem to be turning to more agent based signings rather than scouting. Yeah, I mean, that's what the evidence seems to be suggesting and, of course, is the, therefore is the conclusion that people are drawing. Um, you know, that definitely reflects business that's taken place. Uh, we all know about Kia, Jurabshin, mm -hmm. and his link to both Edu and a number of our recent signings. Um, and, you know, everyone's very, very justifiably has a distaste for getting into bed with super agents. Uh although it's worked very well for Wolves and some other teams. Um, again, for me, it's one of those ones where, the, again, the initial reaction is one of unease, particularly when it, you, you have names that you recognise, like Francesco Cajigal, who, you know, we we don't need to re recap who he's scouted in the past, it's all been mentioned, but he's had a significant yeah. impact on the club. Um, yeah, Nacho Monreal even posted a thank you. Yeah, Nacho, Lauren, Fabregas all posted about it. Van Persie was apparently scouted by him, but we—I don't think Van Persie spoke on the subject. I, I don't. I think Van Persie was more of a group effort, but anyway. Yeah. But also, you know, there's Martinelli is apparently is linked to Kajigao and his South American network. Um, and then there's obviously even people like Brian McDermott, who we've all heard of because he was manager of Reading and he was an ex-Arsenal player, and he's been on the scouting staff at Arsenal for a long time. Uh, and Peter Clark and people like that, who if you've been very interested you'll know about and what have you but again it, it, it's all a case of so what happens next because yeah, who will do the signings who will do the scouting because they're clearly How not find the players? Yeah, they're, they're clearly not just going to fire all their scouts and have no one looking at players because mm -hmm. that's insane yeah <laughs> but, but but also you know we can't just be buying Kia Jurabshin clients because obviously he doesn't have that many clients. He's, <laughs> you know, he doesn't he doesn't have a roster of five hundred people. You know, yeah. um, and we've already got half of them, particularly, <laughs> and appear to be gaining another one or two. So there won't be any left <laughs> that, that play in positions. Yeah. Um, so, and we we start the stats DNA people. 
Yes, well, the, well, the, the, the person who's leading up stat DNA left of his own accord, I think, to go and join Wenger at FIFA. Um, <laughs> but we still have stat DNA connected to the club. So, but that relationship is a little unclear at the moment. There's a story coming out in, in the Evening Standard saying that Edu's talking about wanting to move to a more analytics-based approach of scouting, which seems to contradict what we've seen with Mislintat and Stat DNA. <laughs> but again, we don't know. We just don't know. And what I would say to try and comfort people is, you know, I I was I talked about this a tiny bit when Mislintat went in that ultimately as long as the decision as long as there is you know the decision makers are, are good at their jobs at making the final decision you don't need as vast a scouting network as you think you do mm-hmm. uh, you, you know the, the fact is is the information age has changed that to a degree you know you you can get okay so it's not it's never the same watching a player on video as it is watching live but you can do that initial scouting process to work out who to have a proper look at without leaving your house now. Um, You know, know, we talk about, obviously, Wenger has this amazing reputation for the players that he managed to get hold of, but they were all through people, contacts that he knew about. And half of those players actually, you know, even someone like me, I didn't know about Anilka, okay, and I didn't know how good Vieira was, and I didn't know the petit, how good Petit could be in midfield, but all the but all the rest of Wenger's signings, bar like the sixteen-year-olds, I knew about, and, I, and I'm not a professional in football. You know, I'm just some idiot with a microphone. <laughs> uh, and and to be honest, you know, the agent approach is something. It all depends on balance because we all know that through a distaste for agents and working with massive agents. Wenger lost out on some of the world's best players when they were available. Yeah, true, true. And isn't this like more of an American approach? Don't they have agents, like big bosses <laughs> in American uh, football and uh, basketball and all of that? Well, I mean, they've got the draft system, so the whole, so they still are very heavily reliant on scouting, but they're scouting a much smaller pool. And, but they have a much more anal- uh, it, in, in the states. It's moving to a much more statistical, analytical, data-driven process, which is very much about like really going into granular detail with advanced data metrics and stuff. Some of which I don't understand. You know, I follow ice hockey quite strongly, so I understand some of it. And of course, we're starting to get that in football. We've all seen these the coloured the coloured graphs pointing in different directions, comparing players and the xg and the xp and the x you know, xa and the you know, all the rest of it. Um, so football is already has a much more analytical base than it has had before. Um, but, of course, you do still need people who can look at players and make the final decision as to whether that and, and whether that statistical analysis is actually applicable in a real-world situation. Can, can it adapt to the team that you have as well? Um, so one, one creation commentator has the same... That statistics in football are like like a bikini. Right. They are showing a lot, but hiding the important parts. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very politically correct, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's true. It's true. Is ultimately, y- you don't ever want a situation where the stats people are overriding, you know, the director of football and the and the head coach. 
Because if you're doing that, you're going to get in a situation where, well, you're going to have a, a Lucas Perez situation, <laughs> you know, because uh, cause we know that there was times when Arsenal were trying to adjust to how to use the stats and didn't necessarily do so in the best way in the past. Um, now, is letting go of a large number of scouts, particularly high-profile ones, a good look? Of course not. Is it the right decision? It's very hard to say because, again, there's also the issue of how much physical scouting can a lot of these people do at the moment? You yeah, know, they can't. Sure. They can't go to games. Yeah. Or if they can, they can only go to certain. You know, they can have much more restrictions over that. You know, we don't know quite what leagues are going to be fully up and running in the next six to twelve months. You know, there are. You know, in somewhere like Brazil, obviously, football is going to keep going in some capacity, but. The way that coronavirus keeps spreading them, we have no idea how much scouting is going to be possible there in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to see you know, there's talks of second waves and all the rest of it. So I suppose I think I think the club is using the circumstances as an excuse to make decisions they already wanted to make. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what they've got planned after that. So it's very hard to, for us to assess is it the right decision? Is it terrible? <laughs> I always wonder, do other clubs go out with stuff like that so transparent so their friends know everything that's happening? Well, I suppose it depends partly on whether that's advantageous for you to do so. Like if it would make sense then to not be telling us if they were going to be doing something new that was different to some of their competitors. You know, I, I was reading something this week talking about that. You know, the scouting approach change is something which some people think a lot of other clubs will follow, mm-hmm. to in one degree or another. But obviously, Arsenal are doing it first, and whatever Arsenal got lined up next will not just be the same. You know, they don't want to let everyone know what they're going to be doing because they're trying to get a competitive advantage. Yeah, and I guess. From their perspective, there's not a lot of merit in telling us fans anything until they've got other things in place. I'm sure there will be announcements or there will be interviews, but but a bit like with you know Edu or the, all the interviews last summer, until something's there, it's risky to talk about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yeah, the, certainly from a PR perspective, it should have been handled handled much better. But what I believe has happened is that some of the the redundancy story came out, was was leaked, and then the official statement about that came out. And the scouts story was leaked as well by someone, possibly one of the people being let go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so it became a situation where Arsenal had, didn't have control of the narrative anymore. Yeah. And so they decided to address some of it, but not all of it. Um, we have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, not that it looks like, not that any of the players we've been linked with this summer... Uh, appear to be people we'd need a great deal of scouting to, to talk about one way or another. <laughs> yeah, the first one probably announced very soon. <laughs> yeah, um, so listeners, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon. Uh, just before we started recording, a statement from a certain Brazilian who might be in the, the departure lounge at Stamford Bridge confirming that he's leaving yeah. uh, made its way to the internet. Um there is no confirmation that he is joining Arsenal, although that seems by far the most likely outcome from everything we've seen so far. We are, of course, talking about Kier Drabshin client uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and all-round attacking midfielder Willian. 
Um, I mean, what's your thoughts on that as a, as a prospective transfer as it looks pretty much nailed on? I don't know. I mean, he seems like a really good player. He, Whenever he played for, for Chelsea, he was really decent. And... I'm sorry. It's all right. A little cat noise does no one any harm. <laughs> he was okay. I mean, I don't like that he's over, over 30. And I, as I mentioned before, I prefer younger players and giving younger, younger players more chances and everything. But again... A good mixture of experienced player with with the young ones is also okay. I did like the rumor that he is is gonna get like one hundred k per week, mm-hmm. something like that which is fine by me because it's a lot a lot less than I expected at first. Yeah, I really don't want us to you know promise someone a big paycheck and a long contract and then stuff happens again. <laughs> So I, I mean, yeah, okay. Seems that Teta is okay with him. He likes him. So if, if he's, if he likes the player, I'm okay with him as well. I mean, it seems from a squad perspective to to essentially be a slightly older, uh, considerably cheaper, uh, Mikatarian replacement. <laughs> uh, I mean, slightly different type of player, obviously. Uh, and uh, you know, certainly more proven in the Premier League in terms of Premier League effectiveness. Obviously, Mikatarian's had a very good time at Roma of late um, but I mean for me it's a signing which yeah okay it's not it's not the dream it's not ideal but strategically I find I can't really find anything wrong with it at all yeah, uh, so. you know he can play right wing left wing number 10 um, get, which is you know we all know that Arteta wants tactical flexibility we know that um you know, we've got Pepe starting to sh- to come good, but we don't have anyone that's really a left winger in the squad unless you unless you want to give uh, Bukayo Saka the keys to the kingdom, which is, is a massive risk. And we have um, we have a lot of experienced players who are going to be leaving the club either this year or next year. Yeah. You know, some of them would like to leave this year, but they might have to wait until next year. <laughs> but you know, we've got but but experienced players who are not going to be first choice players you know you've got Ozil you've got Socrates you've got Mustafi to a degree although that situation used to be a bit fluid you've got Kolasinac that we know the club would quite like to leave David Luiz is probably going in a year um, you've got who else uh, obviously there's question marks about Torreira's future you know uh, El Mini will be leaving as soon as he returns from his loan spell <laughs> um and then, and then in the final third, we've only basically got our two strikers, and then a lot of inexperience. Yeah. You know, in in, in, in all the attacking positions, and um, you know, essentially we're we're a, pos- a position where if we don't bring someone experienced in that role, then we're essentially we're we're relying on either bringing in another another young player who's got to adapt to the Premier League, or we're relying on our kids. And of course. A lot of people express concern about this might reduce opportunities for some of the younger, younger players, and of course that is a concern. But also buying someone that basically will be done in a couple of years. You know, he's getting a three-year contract to sign him for his stability, but basically the, the club are probably planning for him to be in and around the first team for two years, unless he surprises us all. You know, as in regularly in and around the first team. Um, and that that gives a nice little buffer for our younger players to adjust from being promising youngsters to being, you know, Premier League professional players who can contribute more regularly. And then if it doesn't work out, then you then you spend the money on someone else. Yeah. But it gives us that little bit of breathing room, particularly at a time where we've got 
a lot of bad contracts that we can't get rid of that will be leaving in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. And, you know, even if it's only two years that he's usable for, you know, his, his salary, as you say, is lower than anticipated. It's lower than he's getting paid at Chelsea because he wants the stability because he wants to stay in London for other reasons. And, you know, if that's reported, then it's, a, then it's actually a very, because it's a free transfer, it works out as a good deal for us because he's not going to be on a five-year contract. We're not stuck with him forever. Um, so I'm very happy with it if it happens. I, I think I think he also has a lot of qualities that we don't have in this squad. And I think actually he might be more useful to us than he's been to Chelsea, even though he's been good for Chelsea. Um, so that's my thought. I, I remember I read a tweet from, from Tim Stillman who obviously is very familiar with Brazilian national team as well as, Indeed. Uh, as <laughs> Premier League. Uh, when he, he mentioned something like William is good for two, three, four, five matches and then really bad or disappears for the next five, which could also be a problem. But then perhaps if he does have a really bad that's the moment when we can introduce our youngsters and give someone else a chance. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... W- the good thing is is bringing a player like that in you know when we've got some young players who are going to need minutes he's not going to just be get to be guaranteed first choice he's going to have to earn it and and it'll be very interesting to see you know obviously it'll be a, an interesting comparison of, of coaching between Arteta and uh, the players that the, the coaches that William has had at Chelsea you know what <laughs> what can Arteta get out of him um you know, I don't see him being like a game changer for us, a first choice player all season. I don't see him being someone that really makes the team kick on massively. But I see him being someone that will add value and depth to a squad that lacks those things. You know, yeah. I, I, I mean, we've talked about before how even though it's hard to, do, to disagree with letting Iwobi go for that kind of money and for letting Mkhitaryan go on those kind of wages, we have missed them at times this season. Um, and the moments when we think, oh, we really do us well here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the case. I mean, I had that the same thoughts about Mesutesu, for example. Mm. Whenever we struggled to create a single chance, there, you know, there was that big hole in the middle of midfield with the passing and everything. We think, oh, yeah, if only we had a world-class midfielder, passer, assister in the team to play there, and then you think. When he did get some chances, he wasn't always that that good, that missing, missing link or something. It's it's. I think it's it's just you know human thing to think that the thing that is the thing or the person that is missing would be just what we need right right now in the, in a bad situation in a bad moment. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a combination of two English idioms there. It's either absence makes the heart grow fonder. Or, mm-hmm. or the grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, is ultimately, no one's wrong by saying those things. You know, Özil has a skill set that this team needs, but he also has glaring weaknesses to his game, which are, which this team isn't good enough to carry. Yeah. And and so it's all about a question of balance. You know, what's what's the balance with that? And you know, we don't know what's gone on behind the scenes. Something has gone on behind the scenes. We've got no idea what, because unlike Genduzi, there's, n- you know, there's nothing really come out about Urzel apart from maybe he took a bit too much time off after his kid was born and wasn't really focused in training. But people have been hearing those stories about Meza Urzel for years. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's there's clearly something else going on. Um, it, it seems that he's definitely staying. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe there'll be some way to reintegrate him next season. Who knows? Maybe they'll find. You know, of course, people have been speculating. Is it is it because he refused to take a pay cut with the other players without having guarantees first? You know, did that affect the morale or kind of the way that he was viewed of being involved or not? That that's just speculation. We've got no idea if that's a factor or not. And ultimately, if that is a factor, that's something there might be a way of resolving. I've also heard, you know, other things suggesting that there's something else going on, which is, you know, which which is a bit more personal that people don't want to speculate about, because it could. But you know, again, we just don't know. All we know is something's going on, and we may or may not ever find out about it. Um, but we have to sort of proceed as if he's not going to be involved very much, which, of course. Uh, adds value to the William uh, transfer. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, we're not going to go too far down the speculation route because, hey, we've got some, uh, an off-season of podcast to do. Uh, <laughs> but we have obviously been linked to some other players, been very strongly linked to the Lille defender Gabriel. Um, so uh, I don't know if you know anything about him at all. <laughs> you know, I... I did see his name mentioned uh, on, on social media and on our daily canon Slack and everything. So I, I did a little search on him before the podcast and noticed that he was on loan in Dinamo Zagreb. Indeed. So I, I went to Twitter and asked my uh, friend I know who doing stats for, for Croatian League and everything if he has any info on him, how he was. And he said he didn't do, do much in, in Croatian League. He was loaned from Dynamo to Dynamo 2, mm-hmm, who played mm-hmm. in the second Croatian league, <laughs> uh, and then he returned to Lille, and where, where he got uh, more chances and obviously used them well. Yeah. But that friend of mine says that Arsenal could do better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, are you sure? <laughs> it's very tight. <laughs> He mentioned that the, he doesn't see much sense in, in signing him uh, after we signed Saliba as well. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation. Uh, obviously, part of it is, you know, it seems, according to journalists, that we've made bids, or certainly firm inquiries, as Man United may appear to have done. He's uh, great friends with Pepe, which is also mm-hmm. part of it, and obviously Brazilian. Now we have our Brazilian enclave at the club. Um, for those who don't know anything about him he's uh, a left-footed center half he's got good size 6'2 or 6'3 I'm not sure yeah 190 centimeters I'm on the European measurement 22 years old yeah yeah and good long passer loves a slide tackle quite physical um would do well in Premier League. Yeah, I mean, he's potentially a very good fit. I haven't seen enough of him to know what his concentration is like and those other, you know, those the temperamental things, you know, that are harder to judge just by highlights. And, uh, you know, obviously having young centre-halves is a risk. Um, yeah. But at the same time, we have a lot of centre-halves that I guess long-term we don't necessarily want to be key players at the club. Yeah, it's hard, just hard to see what will happen because now the, the Mustafi rumors have all uh, come up again and there's always speculation about Holding or Chambers, will they 
stay here or mm. not. And then there's uh, even the Hector Bellerin situation. And I think um, from what I've seen of Gabriel, him and Saliba look have the makings of a potentially a good part, a complementary partnership. Mm-hmm. Saliba's slightly more composed, more of a stand-up defender, more of a, a good short to medium range passer. Um, but it's just kind of exciting to see the club looking at buying centre halves that aren't five foot eleven anymore, <laughs> um, which is something we have not had enough of in recent years. <laughs> I mean, the rumoured fee they're talking about is 20 million plus add-ons of up to about another 10 if they're all met, which, again, is... Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's plausible. Uh, he's left-footed, of course, um, which means, you know, for that left side of the back four, it's only really him and Pablo Marie. Obviously, you know, he could learn a lot from David Luiz, um, you know, given they have the Brazilian connection. So it's it's a signing which... I confess I don't know enough to know if it, how quick an impact he could have, but it strategically makes sense if it, if it were to happen. Um, the obvious one that won't go away is Thomas Party, <laughs> um, but of course nothing's going to happen with that one way or another until Atletico Madrid are out of Europe. Yeah. Um, now, I, d- I don't I don't know if you've seen much of the player, but I, I mean I think he could be a a, a, if we got him and the and and one other midfielder who is a bit more creative, he could be transformational for us. I think. Yeah, he definitely seems like a missing link, like broken under for for United. Um, but of course, his release clause is in excess of forty million pounds, so we probably can't buy him until someone leaves. <laughs> <laughs> is it worth it? Do we take the risk? Do we sell? Torreira, okay, I've seen that the rumors were again from, from was it Milan? Milan and Fiorentina and uh, Torino, because Torino have just hired his ex-manager to take over. So there's there's talk of that being uh, options. Of course, we all know that Italian clubs aren't quite so happy to spend large sums of money. <laughs> uh, so of course, there's been lots of jokes about oh, well, that'll be with a two-year loan with an option to buy for fifteen million at the end of the two years. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think we can all say that Torreira is a player whose future, Arsenal future in question, particularly given his interview in, uh, in the Uruguayan press that was bits bits were translated, suggesting that he thinks it would be the better for everyone if he moves on. And I don't think you'd find too many fans disagreeing with that, despite his very promising start under Unai Emery. The last yeah. year and a half haven't, haven't really worked out for him, have they? Yeah. Um, so you know there are there obviously we're we're still being linked to this uh, Joel Eason's Fernandez uh, is it Fernandez yeah, uh, uh, sporting Lisbon's youth team who's a winger that mm. everyone's saying is the next Cristiano Ronaldo just because they both played for Sporting. Uh, on the pitch. Uh, but I mean he's an exciting kid, uh, but it's probably not a massive priority for us. Uh, and the other one, of course, that won't go away is the Coutinho links. <laughs> which no one knows if that's just us being used to generate interest or if there is any interest. Uh, there was lots of stories yesterday about how he was at Arsenal's training ground for talks at the same time as he was at Bayern Munich's training ground for training. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some mention like uh, how long the flight is from, from uh, Munich to, to London, so it wouldn't be a problem to be on talks at 
one point and then in training uh, like an hour or so later yeah sure yeah <laughs> you could do it you could do it if you got a private jet and you didn't have to go through passport control and you got <laughs> it's like oh you could just accept the fact that given that he's currently playing for Bayern Munich and they're still in the Champions League he's probably more focused on that yeah. at the moment and from an Arsenal perspective, you know, there's been other stories saying that we're only interested in, in if we can't get Willian, uh, is it an either or? Would it would it be worth the club, you know, taking Coutinho on loan for a season, paying maybe half two thirds of his wages and a loan fee? I mean, it's hard to say that one. Uh, I, I'm inclined not to waste too much more effort talking about it until we know more. Yeah. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to launch into a question we've been sent mm-hmm. this week. Question by friend of the podcast, Andy Foster. That's at Andy Foster. That's Andy with an I, at Andy Foster. You get, again? Are you getting? Are you getting that? Are you getting that? It's at Andy Foster. A N D I Foster, uh, who asks, who is on the unsellable list? Oh. And obviously this is related to the fact there's been rumours and stories about lots of Arsenal players being up for sale at the moment, potentially yeah. to raise funds. Uh, some of them are people that we wouldn't be remotely surprised about, like uh, Socrates, uh, Mustafi, Kalashinac, yeah, Torreira. Uh, but then there's others which are slightly less obvious, like Lacazette and uh, obviously Maitland-Niles after his performance in the, in the cup final all these stories saying that the board have overruled Arteta and want to sell him, regardless of what Arteta <laughs> thinks. Which is like, mm, who's leaked that story to the press? Because that hasn't come from the club. Yeah. Is that his agent? His new agent who he signed with uh, signed with uh, earlier this year um, when it was looking like he wasn't going to get any game time and he needed to move on? Is that his new agent who... Under, who took him on under those circumstances realising that maybe he needs to drum up some business so his, so his client does actually leave the club and he can get a nice signing on fee I don't know, maybe I'm just being cynical um, I mean I'm sure if someone did bid £35 million for Ainsley Maitland-Niles the club would probably be willing to let him go yeah, um, definitely um, I mean unsellable I'm not, I've stopped being so attached to players. I've learned <laughs> past mistakes. So I, I would say. She well, still hurts Fabregas. See what you did to her. <laughs> she still feels it. <laughs> oh, don't get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, unsellable. Uh, I would say the, obviously the goalkeepers. They have both well, and I think that Arteta will definitely struggle to see who will be the first choice. Mm. for the league next season uh, I would say Aubameyang but I'm not sure how Klopp feels about that and how he feels but I wouldn't definitely he's too important player for us at the moment so it's just really yeah looking him would be horrible and he's also the marquee player he's the superstar you know from all kinds of reasons it doesn't make sense for the club to sell him unless he refuses to sign a new contract or makes Exorbitant demands. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the young lads like Saka, uh, Emil Smith Rowe for the for the future, uh, Kieran Tierney, who is called hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I would go with Chaka as well because I think that he's definitely. 
really important player in Atletas team. But other than that, and you know, the, the human side of me would say Hector Bellerin because I really, really like him as, as a person, as a human being, and you know, generally very, very likable guy. But football wise, I think that we would survive if, if we had to sell him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's what's our unsellable list or what's the club's unsellable list? I think maybe two different questions. Um, <laughs> But I do think we'd find a lot of accord. I mean, I, 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 I agree with, with everything you say. I mean, a lot of people have been suggesting that while we've got two goalkeepers that have been in great form, maybe we should sell one of them. Uh, personally, I think uh, Martinez's track record is not well enough established to take that risk to to sell Leno. And I think, obviously, because he hasn't got a great track record, you're not going to get the fee for Martinez to be willing to give up a potentially world-class goalkeeper. Argentina's number one. <laughs> um, it'd be typical, wouldn't it, if Argentina finally get a decent goalkeeper when Messi's too old to drag the team. <laughs> yeah, well, Messi and the other players from that golden generation of Argentinian football that slightly underachieved. Um, I agree that uh, Xhaka is unsellable for the moment. Um, I know that a lot of people still have the still are not very happy about Xhaka, and of course he has a ceiling to him, which means... You know, he's unlikely to be a player in a, in a Premier League winning, Champions League winning team starting. But at the moment, he's our most important midfielder and one of the one of the main leaders of the club. Ober, as for reasons we already discussed, Kieran Tierney, cult hero, potential left back for a decade. Um, I think, uh, I think Hector Bellerin. I think you could only sell if the money's more than you'd want for that level of player if you know what I mean because he's yeah. been at the club so long he's got a reputation he has, has a, he has a he has a fan base of his own he has got a commercial he's got a commercial revenue potential you know good looking cool young guy um, and also more importantly he's just starting to show that he's getting back to the level that we've seen him at before and if he's getting back to his physical level we of course we want to see what he can how he can develop under a coach that seems to be having a great impact on the team and other players in the team Um, and then beyond that obviously Pepe you can't really justify selling unless someone puts a stupid fee simply because we've invested vast money in him and also now he's starting to show signs of he could be a game changer for us in in, you know more regularly Um, and then in terms of the kids yeah Saka's the obvious one Smith Rowe, you have to give a chance to. He's I mean, been good on one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't want to sell any of the other kids, but I don't think you call them unsellable uh, because yeah, they haven't shown quite as much at the top level yet. Uh, much as, you know. Sorry. Maitland Niles, yeah. Willock. Uh, Reese Nelson is a player which, who hasn't really shown at the Premier League level what he can do. And the number of fans have been talking about you trying to use him as a make way for getting Zaha or or raise money but uh, I think Nelson has has an incredibly high ceiling but might not have the personality to reach it mm-hmm. but but I think it's too early to make for us to make a judgment call about that yet because I think while he lacks physical explosiveness and uh, a bit of power and confidence at this level I think technically he's probably as advanced as any of our other young players um, 
and and accordingly is you would be stupid to give up on him because he could you know he's never going to be as powerful but he could have a, a Serge Gnabry type in, impact somewhere if he, if he were to leave but other than that yeah I mean I suppose Saliba but up everyone else everyone else is expendable uh, I think the club would probably see David Luiz is, is non-expendable obviously Pab Marie and Cedric have just joined but uh, yeah like uh, this is why you see all these articles about you know people talking about these players are up for sale and to raise cash and it's not any more than just looking at who the club could let go from a strategic point of view and adding two and two together you know I mean we could all see that Socrates, uh, Mustafi, Kalasanac, potentially holding Lacazette. We could all see that these players, Torreira, are are comparatively expendable. Of course they are, because you know Lacazette's the only one who's a guaranteed starter, and he's you know at a stage where we've either got renew him or sell him. So it's not rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, times times have, have changed. I mean, there are basically no more players that stick around the club for for ten or so seasons in a row. So everyone, and even when a player leaves, you can be, probably find another one who's equally good or uh, even better around the, the league or around Europe or Brazil or something. And also, we're still at the stage of you know we've seen Lacazette. We're making. We're trying to sort of make judgments about what players have been doing under Arteta's current system, mm. but we have no idea if that's a system that Arteta wants to stick with. Yeah. It's a system that Arteta's playing because he's looking at the players he's got and going, "Well, how can I make this team functional?" You know, it, it seems to be very unlikely that this is his long-term vision. Um, so, it depends what he actually wants to do and which players he sees fitting into that. Really. All we can hope for is that the board, those that make decisions and give up the money, <laughs> will support our data as well and his vision. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and you know, we have to um, expect that as a net spend for us this year is probably going to be 50 million or less net spend. But, you know, because players are going to leave, the, you know, we're going to be looking at good value signings, free transfers and loans. Of course we are because of where we are financially compared to the other top clubs. Uh, and also because, you know, match day revenue being lost hurts us more than any other team in the UK. Mm-hmm. Apart from maybe lower down the leagues where they have very small commercial revenue. But in terms of in terms of the Premier League and even quite a lot of the championship teams, we get a larger percentage of our ma- of our income from match day income. And so the talk the talk is we're gonna have lost as a club, about a hundred million pounds in the last twelve months. Uh, so we, we we can't just do like Chelsea and Man City and throw three hundred million pounds at the problem. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how. <laughs> but what, our owner is so rich. He's rich, but he's also what what I think people forget to realise is he's very rich. But a that most of that money is not sitting in the bank. It's yeah. asset capital. Which, which the large percentage of is his through his wife and the Walmart business. So he can't just suddenly sell it all tomorrow and raise and, and raise a couple of billion. He mm-hmm. just can't do that. But and you know, and a lot of his loans are already secured against that. But also, he's operating in a really risky environment financially. You know, his primary earners are like uh, either malls through Walmart or real estate. 
both of which are like hitting, are taking massive financial hits in the States at the moment. And he also owns other sports clubs where he, particularly two of whom, well, particularly the Rams, of course, where there's massive investment in a new stadium, which is massively, which has become much more expensive, become this vast project. And, and it's finally completed at a time when there's no fans. timing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's already had a, a shit ton of problems and then there's no fans. And, in, of course, the things are so bad in the States, you don't know, you know, in certain states, you don't know how the different states are getting spiked at different times. Yeah. You know, they, it could be it could be a year before any of his sports teams have stadium revenue again, in a worst-case scenario. And in America, that's more likely than it is in the UK. And... And that's no also, one even planned for that. I mean, how can you plan for that? Exactly. And then his real estate business is taking massive hits. The malls are taking massive hits. You know, people, are, businesses are going bust. So their tenancies, their people they're renting to, people that they're selling to. You know, so he's carrying a lot of risk at the moment. So given that his model was always not to put more money in the club anyway, <laughs> it doesn't seem to, you know, short of them restructuring the loan to give us some more flexibility... I think anyone expecting him to put any more money into the club is is like, yeah, all right, good luck for that one. Um, but you know, ultimately, we've seen from Liverpool that you don't have to do that. Yeah. You know, if you're smart just, enough, just find someone to sell to Barcelona for one point in Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, can something similar in the past, you know. <laughs> well, when Messi finally gets pissed off and leaves, or finally gets too old. They're going to need someone who plays on the right that cuts in on their left foot. Just saying. <laughs> um, I'm saying that relatively seriously as well. But um, but it's also the fact that Liverpool, it wasn't just the eye-catching sales. You know, we've talked to this before about how Arsenal have made an absolute botch job of sales in recent years. You know, we've let hundreds of millions of talent, pounds worth of talent walk out the club for next to nothing. And Liverpool have been getting people to pay like twenty million for fucking Jordan Ibe and Dominic Solanke. <laughs> so, you know, it, we we have to we have. We, we, I mean, it's clear the club is looking at that as a major influence for the way we operate, and they're going to have to because uh, no matter how much we want it to, no one's going to going to give Arteta uh, two hundred million pounds to spend on fullbacks every fucking summer like Pep. <laughs> Oh, we've got one more question that has literally come in live. I was just about to wrap this up, but we've got a live question that's come in. So bear with me for a second. Uh, it's just going to load up on my Twitter feed. Here we go. Um, oh, well, there we go. We sort of addressed this, but we're touching it properly. Uh, this is from uh, Rohan Kumar on uh, Twitter, 09Rohan, who has uh, been on the podcast before. He's come back with a question saying... How do we think we should handle the Leno Martinez dilemma next season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about that a bit. We, 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 yeah, <laughs> I mean, we talked about it from a transfer perspective, but in terms of a selection perspective, what would you do? I, I think I, you kind of uh, <laughs> give me a really some good idea on what to reply here because I agree with you that Mark Martinez definitely doesn't have that consistency just yet because obviously he hasn't been getting regular starts for, for such a long time. So I would still go with uh, Bernd Leno as a starting goalkeeper in the Premier League and have Martinez play all the cup competitions in the league. Interesting. 
I would actually differ from you there. I, I would start the season with Martinez as number one. Uh, but obviously he knows that, Le- you know, that Leno's there waiting to take this job from him if he doesn't do well enough. And start Leno in the cup simply because I think Martinez has played at such a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's able to replicate the form that he's shown over the last two or three months, or no less than that, last month and a half, then then that Martinez is a better goalkeeper than Bert Leno. Not in every aspect. I think Bert Leno is much better at rushing out at the feet of strikers, better at staying big when rather than getting the ball lifted over them. Uh I think he's I think uh, Leno is also um slight, slightly quicker off his line and and is even better as a reflex shot stopper. But I think Martinez is comfortably better on crosses. Uh Better, takes more control in his penalty area uh, and is better at giving the illusion of calm to his defenders uh, so you know I I think the two we, as we've seen them of late are a very similar level with slightly different strengths and weaknesses but I think the thing I think the things that Martinez is better at of are slightly more important to us given the profile of our team around him at the moment but I mean you could toss a coin for me uh, but we, of course we have no idea can Martinez replicate that when there's fans in the ground and there's that different level of pressure yeah, you know sure. can he replicate that over a season because um, you know Martinez has made it pretty clear that if he doesn't get a chance to be first choice next season he's going to be off anyway so he's going to want some assurances about at least getting the opportunity to to hold on to that shirt. I think maybe switch them up like like Chelsea do. But Chelsea do it for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't Liverpool doing the same when they had that? When they had that crap goalkeeper, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not that, that familiar with goalkeepers and their training and everything. How how important consistency is for them, you know, playing week in week out. I'm sure it varies from person to yeah. person. That's the thing. I don't think I don't. I mean, I, I would guess that most prefer consistency. You know, uh, I, I would suspect that Martinez's better showing has been influenced by the fact that he had a period of knowing that he was safe for a few games, rather than just I'm going to play this one game and then I'm going to be dropped the next game anyway, mm-hmm. regardless. I mean, that's got to help, obviously. Um, but you can still achieve a certain amount of that if you make it a real competition. Um, but it's what makes it difficult, of course, is that neither goalkeeper has done anything to merit being dropped. Yeah. <laughs> Some sweet troubles for a keeper. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, you, you would start with Leno, I'd start with Martinez. But I think we're both agreed that it wouldn't be hard to make the other way around decision and feel comfortable with it. Yeah, sure. Both are really good. Lucky in that department. Yeah, after after all our troubles, we are rewarded for all the years of Ospina, Ospina, Almunia, Almunia, and uh, Fabianski. (laughs) Wait, Fabianski helped us win the FA Cup. So did Ospina. (laughs) (laughs) That was the big one, the first one. Just saying. Okay, okay. I think it's time to wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, well, yep. Yeah, uh, 
I hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed it and it's been uh, at least in- interesting to you to hear us reflect on the season and reflect on recent events, particularly around the redundancies, and look a bit at some of what's going to be happening ahead. Uh, thank you, Anita, for uh, joining me on this recap and look forward. Yeah, it was, a, it was fun. And, uh, yeah, of course, listeners, uh, do keep uh, an eye out for at Daily Canon on Twitter for other stories coming out of the site. But also do just uh, drop us a line if you want to get in touch before any future podcasts. Ask us any questions like the guys today. Uh, if Obviously, if you give us a bit more notice, we can do some in-depth digging if there's anything you want us to do, investigate. And we'd be delighted to do so. That's at Daily Canon on Twitter. Other than that, nothing else to say except for... Have a lovely week. I hope it stays lovely and warm wherever you are listening to this, although perhaps not quite as warm as it is today. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, it's goodbye from me. Bye. And it's obviously a goodbye from Anita, as you can hear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.